0: Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Betsy McGregor, MD, and Michael Lerner. This conversation is titled, In Awe of Being Human.
1: Betsy McGregor, welcome to the New School.
2: Thank you, Michael. I'm happy to be here.
1: We're sitting in your living room, actually it's not your living room, it's your study, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in your home on Doc Savage Drive in the small town of Langley on Whidbey Island, north of Seattle. Um, You and I have known each other for, um, since, um, I was thinking since around 19... Ninety-two, I think 90 or 1992, something like that.
2: Mm-hmm, I know it's a long time.
1: Right. We met, um, if memory serves me, in the build-up to the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. Mm. That's my memory. And you uh, and your community in New York City were holding meetings about um, sustainability. That's right. And I think that's how we met. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, You are a physician. Uh, You worked in a busy New York City hospital for nearly three decades, caring for seriously ill patients as a staff pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist and a researcher in end-of-life care. And you've been uh, an advocate uh, for integrative patient-centered medical care um, and have really had a remarkable uh, career. Founding, I believe, one of the first uh, palliative pain clinics in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's an extraordinary contribution.
2: Yes, I uh, was just at the beginning of the, the understanding um, an initiative about addressing pain management more uh, consciously and compassionately for patients. And much of my career I saw, Pain just disregarded whether it was children in pain or adults in pain. And uh, I finally um, asked the chair of my department to let me go and visit another hospital in the U.S. where I had heard they were beginning to look at pain as a a problem in itself that needed to be addressed. So I went and spent uh, a week... Um, following and this other doctor around as she did her pain management work, and I came back to New York, and my hospital just fired up with passion about we're going to we're going to do this too, and we're really going to make a difference. And it it was something I just felt so passionate about, and it was a great relief to me to see when we could care for our patients um, and alleviate their pain as part of the, the, just the integral part of their care.
1: You've written an extraordinary book uh, called In Awe of Being Human, A Doctor's Stories from the Edge of Life and Death. Um, many of our friends have, um, have written comments on it uh, Andrew Weil, MD, uh, speaks about it uh, in glowing terms. Luminous stories show how doctors and patients alike step forward to meet the most daunting challenges life can bring. Uh, Larry Dawsey, um, uh, similarly Roshi Joan Halifax, uh, James Gordon, Rachel Naomi Remen uh, from Commonweal, uh, in awe of being human is a book of inspiration and renewal. It is impossible to read these beautiful stories without remembering that at the core, medicine is not a work of science, but an act of love. So we have lived and worked together in the extended community of integrative uh, care uh, for decades. Um, and your friendship and that of your husband, Charles Terry, who's been an extraordinary partner in uh, the work, uh, broadly speaking, has been a gift in my life, which I just want to acknowledge because uh, there's a deep bond Mm. among us that is important to acknowledge at the beginning of this. So I thought it would be good to start by asking you to read something from In Awe of Being Human and then we'll go on beyond that, uh, beyond the book, but drawing on the book, just into... What, at the new school, I call um, the series of spiritual biographies we've been doing, which is really trying to understand how people came to be who they are. Mm-hmm. So, would you read to us from uh, in awe of being human, a doctor's stories from the edge of life and death?
2: Mm-hmm. I'd like to do that very much. Um, the story I'm going to read is the first one in my book, and um, from the chapter entitled Beauty and Brutality. The coexistence of beauty and brutality creates a paradox that you cannot escape in the practice of medicine. Such a seemingly terrible mismatch isn't easy to confront if you happen to be a young doctor just beginning your clinical training. Coming upon these two apparent opposites, standing starkly side by side, can challenge and stretch you incomprehensibly. For myself, many years went by before I began to accept how thoroughly beauty and brutality could sometimes intertwine, simultaneously filling my heart with reverence and causing it to cry out an anguished protest as together the two carved out in me a fuller capacity for being human." I recall the ice crystals that decorated the outside window panes of the pediatric special care unit on one particularly cold winter day. They sparkled with a touch of bright New York City sunlight. Inside the unit's spacious room, 15 year old Julia lay unconscious in her bed, a white hospital blanket lying neat and smooth over her unmoving form, while the quiet sounds of the cardiac monitor still testified to the beating of her courageous heart. Julia was coming to the end of her long struggle with a brutal illness, childhood leukemia. As valiantly as she had fought to stay alive, she rested now in a tranquil sleep as the rapidly multiplying leukemic cells that had infiltrated her brain proceeded to shut it down. Julia's parents had been preparing themselves for this day, and they sat together at the foot of Julia's bed, hand in hand. For the time being, they shared a quiet space, a lull in the exhaustion of their grief. Over three grueling years of seeking the best possible care for their daughter, partnering with her oncologist in making every medical decision, they had arrived at a place of silence. No words were important enough now to speak. The nurses instinctively knew this, too, and they moved on noiseless feet about the room as they checked the ivy drip line and watched Julia's breath come and go. Julia's younger sister, Lily, age nine, was the only one in the room who was truly busy. She had assigned herself an important task and she was tending to it with calm and certain skill. Sitting in a chair that she had pulled alongside the head of Julia's hospital bed, she had hairbrush in hand, and was carefully brushing her older sister's silky brown hair. Of course, it was only the wig that Julia had liked to wear when she had still felt well, for the uncaring potency of chemotherapy had stolen her own precious hair long ago. Lily had accompanied Julia the day she selected that wig from among many others in order to hide her baldness from the sideways looks of strangers. Today, Lily had begged her parents to put the wig back on Julia and now was treating it with loving care. She had been at the task for some time and her strokes had spread the hair out evenly all across the pillow, like a soft, tawny halo around her dying sister's head. As she proceeded with her project of smoothing and brushing, brushing and smoothing, Lily paused occasionally and tilted her head this way and that, as if to view her work and assess the merit of the gift she was giving to Julia, her much more grown-up sister who almost certainly had never allowed her to do such a thing before. And all the while, Lily accompanied herself with a tune that she hummed in time with the strokes of her brush, while her sister lay still and patient and accepting of her sibling's gift. I chanced to see this scene when passing by the door of the special care unit as I went about my intern work on the adjacent ward. Julia was a private patient of an important attending physician in our department who specialized in pediatric oncology. We, house staff, played only a peripheral role in her care. Still, we were all acutely aware of her presence and her imminent passing, and an unusual quietude tempered the normal hustle and bustle of the ward that day. The senior physician, Dr. Kaplan, had been frank with Julia's parents, explaining that she would not recover from her coma and that it was time to let her go. As he instructed the house staff that we were to forego all measures aimed at prolonging her life any further, I felt compassion for the man. His was not an enviable job, holding the scales of living and dying in his hands. As for me... I felt drawn to Julia's room as surely as a moth is drawn to a window through which light is shining on a dark night. Each time my pressing chores caused me to hurry down the corridor past the partially curtained window of the special care unit, the intimate scene I glimpsed within beckoned to me like a quiet eddy in a rushing river. My feet slowed of their own accord, and my busy thoughts fell temporarily quiet as my heart took in the enormity of the event transpiring there, the passing away of a beautiful soul far too early, a treasured soul who would be sorely missed. Some instinct in me yearned to stand guard over that little sanctuary and shield it from the never-ending buzz of the ward's more everyday affairs. Yet I had not been assigned such a role, and thus, each time my feet began to slow, I reluctantly made them carry me on my way. Nevertheless, that day on the ward is one I will never forget. The simple sight of a nine-year-old girl brushing the hair of her dying sister, the sound of Lily humming as she bent lovingly to her labor, these remain deeply etched in my memory many decades later. I will never forget the exquisite intertwining of tenderness and sorrow my eyes beheld that day, and I continue to cherish that scene with its poignancy that only certain human acts can have. As for Lily, I have no doubt she too still remembers what happened on that chilly winter day, I suspect it will remain forever with her as the day she helped her sister look beautiful just before her brutal illness took her away. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: Hmm. This is such a remarkable book, Betsy, and... Um, I've read, I know you've read, a lot of the books that are out there, physicians telling stories from their careers. Many of them are very beautiful. Um, What struck me about this is, first of all, how, at least to my eye, how carefully, thoughtfully composed it is. You know, one of the Secrets of of really good writing that many people only come on light in a writing career um, is the structure of a book. You know, very often people just write, mm-hmm. um, and and here are your your chapters: uh, beauty and brutality, mystery and miracles, tenderness and technology contradictions and incongruity, loving and being loved, caring and connection, suffering and compassion, giving and receiving, turning wounds into wisdom. Each of these nine chapters and then the epilogue turns around not only extraordinary stories of your experience with patients, but also of, um, turns around the realities of the healthcare system. The uh, for example, just to pick one, um, the interface between tenderness and technology in an intensive care unit for babies, right? Nice. Talk a little about that interface in an intensive care unit for babies between technology and tenderness.
2: Well, the babies who end up in an intensive care unit are critically ill or, or um, born into life with serious um, disabilities or errors in their bodies. And um, they need a lot of care to hang on to life. And working in that setting for me was always a challenge. It, I my heart would open up to these miniature human beings It could hold in the palm of my hand one of these tiny preemies and see how fragile they were. And yet, even in spite of being fragile, something in them was making them cling to life. And my... Training as a doctor was all about trying to support life, in making it through, um, and being able to heal or find the capacity to go on and have a have a uh, longer experience in on this earth. Um, so. There was always, for me, a tension between the rightness of continuing to to literally almost um, not just encourage these tiny babies to live, but in sometimes it felt like we were forcing them to live, even going against what nature would have intended, would would have been to have let them pass away. So um, it was very challenging.
1: You bring out, I mean it evoked for me as I was rereading that chapter uh, my own son's birth and uh, he was born with hyaline membrane disease even though he was a full term child he couldn't breathe this was the disease that took uh, uh, Jack and Jackie Kennedy's child before they developed the CPAC machine that Mm -hmm. pushes air into the lungs so when our son was born. Fortunately, I had that, and um, but there was also this most curious um, experience where a, um, a Hindu spiritual teacher who had blessed uh, my uh, my first wife at just before she conceived was told when our son was in the hospital about the experience and he was not doing well and within an hour or two of him being told this and and his spiritual intervention, whatever that was our son began to recover so there was at once the technology story, there was this strange experience of a some kind of blessing process, both at conception and then at recovery. Uh, And I remember when he was not doing well, and it was clear that he was not doing well, he was not getting better. Lots of people were praying for him. I remember saying to the doctor, who was telling us that he wasn't getting better, I said, uh, you know, uh, we want him to live with all our hearts and souls, but we don't want to torture him. Mm-hmm. And so, because he was talking about some unbelievable intervention, I don't even remember what it was. And I said, you know, if he's not meant to be here. Mm-hmm. And, and you address this, so there's, the, uh, there's one hand, there's the tension between all these, I mean, here are these little, tiny, fragile babies Uh, put under these bright lights, being punctured, being subjected Mm -hmm. to all these tests. And when, at the beginning of your career, technology was kind of all triumphant there. But then as time went on, uh, people began to understand the importance of humanity in these intensive care units and began to give the mothers kangaroo pouches to Mm -hmm. hold their babies near themselves. Um, uh, But you also have a segment in the book where you talk about even the ones that survive often live with tremendous challenges for the rest of their lives. So there are all these profound ethical, moral dilemmas of how to balance the technology with the care, who is in some sense intended to live, who is not intended to live. Can you just talk about How you held those tensions?
2: Oh, that was a very big challenge, Mm -hmm. really. Um, Sometimes I just felt like uh, we were working with such ignorance and um, prolonging life when life really wanted to end. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, what what I always came around to sort of in myself was um, I, I couldn't single-handedly change the way things were being done um, over time a lot more thought has gone into these questions but um, I couldn't myself um, not do what I was trained to do and, and um, was hired to do in my job but What I could do was do it with love. And I felt that every time I held one of these babies in my arms or in one hand, would um, what I was holding in myself, um, this deep desire to care for them, this deep wishing them well, uh, this love um, my heart just opening to them with with love, um, which was very easy for me to do. Um, I felt that that was, in some way, helping to counter the pain and the the um, torture that some of them had to endure. And if, if I just trusted that if the, the soul that had come into this world in that body um, would... I trusted that that soul would decide because many times I saw infants die no matter what, how much care we gave them. And then other infants in the same situation with the same care would live. And so what I wondered, what was really making the difference? And... Um, I can't say with any authority, but I felt that the, this being was participating in the choice. And um, so I, I just decided to trust in that, mm. to believe in that.
1: In the book, um, you, you talk about um, your teacher, your teacher, and Charles's teacher, um, and I wondered if you could read us a little bit about uh, about him. Um, this is uh, hmm. on uh, this is uh, your your teacher Erling, and it's on um, page. Uh, 41. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or maybe I think the starting place is uh, on page 40. So perhaps you could read enough of that to give us a sense of, um, yeah, sort of 40 to 42.
2: Okay. Would be great. Okay, great. I'd love to. Well, let me just start by saying that um, I loved being... One thing about being a pediatrician was being present at birth. I felt um, just so honored um, to be able to witness this miracle of how we come into the world, that each of us comes into the world through the body of another human being. Um, And so... um, I loved that about my work, and I loved it also that I was allowed to um, be present at the moment of death and to to witness the dying process, because to me that was also a great mystery, is a great mystery, Um, being there at the moment that the the body stops, breathing ends, and um, feeling the change that happens between the experiencing the presence of life in this body, and then a moment later, there's nothing in this body. That that the presence that had been there has gone. And to me, that was just such a teaching about life, the, um, about the mystery of life. This we don't understand. Um, we don't really. Know, remember, or keep remembrance in our consciousness of where we came from, and when we go, we we don't know where we're going. So we live our lives in this world, kind of bookended by two great mysteries. So, um, so Erling was a a teacher for me and for many of my friends. Um, he had been um, for. A number of years it just was a very wise person um, but um, he was at one point um, diagnosed with leukemia and um, that was quite a shock that that would happen that that death would be come knocking on the door of this man who seemed so um, was so wise and It seemed like he could endure forever, but... So, here's what I wrote about that experience. Death is a mystery of equal magnitude to that of birth, though it is typically feared rather than welcomed. As many in our modern, modern culture believe, and certainly as most in my profession were taught, I regarded death then only as a foe to be fought against until life showed me otherwise. Just months after I first witnessed human birth, as the third year of medical school was nearing its end, death came to introduce itself to me in a more intimate way than three years of higher education had yet done. Suddenly, in the middle of my hematology elective, a dear friend was diagnosed with leukemia. Having just studied this life-threatening disease, I knew that the road ahead would be hard and the future uncertain. And because my friend Erling was important to me, I decided that becoming a doctor would have to wait. I went to my dean, a decent and honorable man, and explained the situation, requesting that he permit me to take an indefinite leave from medical school. His response was not surprising. He frowned and shook his head unhappily, ...saying he was afraid I would jeopardize my career. He urged me not to be impulsive. But instead of dissuading me, his very words reinforced my decision. The idea that responding to the crisis of a friend... ...would conflict with my career plans did not make sense. To me, the opposite was true. The desire to care for someone dear in a time of need... ...came from the core of my being the place where my passion about becoming a doctor had its roots. You have to be true to impulses like that, I felt. It's a matter of being true to yourself. When I persisted, the dean reluctantly let me go. And so began what turned out to be 13 months of a nonstop duel with a fierce opponent, one with the power to destroy life. "'But if anyone could stay in step with such an opponent, "'it was Erling. "'For years he had been more than a friend "'to the circle of friends to which my husband Charles and I belonged. "'He had been our mentor and teacher. "'A Swede by birth, historian by training, "'and philosopher and lover of art by nature, "'he was the wisest person any of us had ever met. "'Not surprisingly,' Many of us withdrew from other obligations to spend time with him and help him navigate the aggressive treatment protocols of chemotherapy.
0: You are listening to a conversation with Betsy McGregor, M.D., and Michael Lerner.
2: Together, our little band of friends rode the fearsome roller coaster of Erling's remissions and relapses, enduring wrenching swings between hope and disappointment, and then hope once more as the oncologists wrestled with the disease continually refining their strategy trying one thing after another to buy more time day after day we watched erling bear the complications of hills illness with unshakable calm and poise even as it claimed his body bit by bit sapping his strength wasting his muscles and cutting away at his activities And still, throughout it all, he encouraged us and guided us, inviting us to accompany him on this journey. Come with me to meet death, he said. It will teach you what it is to be human and show you how to live your lives more fully.
1: Let's just pause there for a moment because this has brought tears to you.
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes.
1: So let's just pause in the reading for a moment and just honor what's happening in you as we. I was so struck by that passage myself. Come with me to meet death, he said. Mm. It will teach you what it is to be human and show you how to live your lives more fully. What an extraordinary man.
2: Yes, he was extraordinary, and to have known him felt like such a gift, and to have to let him go was probably the hardest thing any of us had ever done.
1: Mm -hmm. Do
2: you want to go on? Mm, Sure. (laughs) What happened that year seemed to take place outside of time, as if we had stumbled into another dimension and lifetimes were going by. We spent endless hours sitting at Erling's bedside, talking into the wee hours of the night. Even the oncologists were drawn into the adventure, paying early lengthy visits, inspired by his indomitable spirit, while bending the usual hospital rules and allowing his chemotherapy and transfusions to be given at home by us, where he wished to remain. Whenever we despaired, Erling smiled. He explained that death was not what we thought it was. It was not the end. He told us that our existence continues after the body dies, for the body is just a temporary form, like a suit of clothing we don when coming into physical existence and discard when we leave. He said that the purpose of living a human life is to learn, and he assured us that our learning would continue for ages as humanity and the earth and the universe as a whole proceed to unfold. He urged us to see life as our teacher. Life is the greatest teacher of all, he said, and his words gave us courage, Indeed, life was teaching us over time. We learned about fatigue and the importance of patience, about pain and the touch about pain and the comfort of touch, about bedside commodes and humility, about wheelchairs ch- and mechanized beds and the loss of independence. We learned about the power of hope to keep a person going in spite of exhaustion about the determination and inventiveness that difficult situations can inspire, about the strength that friends give to each other, and about the sustaining power of love. Above all, we learned that illness can be a hard but deeply meaningful journey filled with treasures only discovered by being willing to go wherever that journey leads. Eventually, though, we could see that the end was approaching. Erling had become bedridden. His muscles were wasted, his body weak and weary to the bone. His face had grown gray and gaunt, and the familiar sparkle in his eyes was beginning to dim. For thirteen months he had shown us the power of the human spirit to endure pain and suffering and to shine forth in triumph, even as the body declined but it was clear that he could not go on any longer, nor was it right to ask him to. He told us he had stayed as long as he could, holding off his dying with the help of his many caregivers, but he could forestall it no longer. He was being called away. We had reached the hardest point of all. We had to be willing to let him go. On Erling's last day of life, we came together around his bed, in his home, where he wished to be, to gather up our grief and say goodbye, each in our own way. We watched as the energy of his life gradually loosened its hold on his body. His eyes became dull, his skin cooled and lost its color, and the momentum of his breathing slowed like a mechanism whose battery was running down until the sound of one last breath came from his lips, barely a whisper, and no more. The silence that enveloped us then was like nothing any of us had ever known. It was not an empty silence. It was full and deep and endless. With serene power, it held us motionless, removing all thought and stilling our souls. It was as if in his dying, Erling took us with him to the very threshold of death and there pulled aside the veil between the worlds, enabling us to look out into the domain of eternity that lies only a single breath away from this world. If you have ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and found yourself looking at a landscape whose breadth and depth your eyes cannot measure nor your mind comprehend, you may be able to imagine what I mean. If you have stared down to the bottom of that chasm, carved into the earth over millions of years, and if you have watched the Colorado River winding slowly between its walls, until finally passing beyond the reach of sight, you may know what it is for your mind to stop and allow you to meet reality with a deeper part of yourself. You may even have sensed that though our physical life will end, some undying essence of us will continue, much like that ageless river flowing on and on through landscapes that stretch beyond conception. That day of Erling's dying wrought a permanent change in me a change in the substance of my being as if there had been an energetic shift in the bonds that held my molecules together as if a thick layer of grime and confusion had been washed away. I felt surrounded by an ineffable presence underlying all of creation filling it with purpose and meaning. We all felt this And in the face of such vastness where peace prevailed, not one doubt remained for us, nor any shred of fear, only awe and gratitude. Though I sorely missed my friend and teacher, still, when I returned to medical school 13 months after leaving, things were surprisingly clear and simple. I had not jeopardized my career. Rather, I was coming back having received a very special gift. Life had pulled me aside and given me one extra year of training, something that would make all the difference in my work as a doctor and in the way I would live. That year taught me that medical care is not just about diagnosing and treating disease but includes paying attention to the people who have the disease, human being to human being, and accompanying them in their search for healing. I learned that death, like birth, can help us see beyond our preoccupation with everyday living to the truly miraculous nature of our own existence. I had felt the power of human caring, and I was charged by this knowing to bring it into all I would do. So I was set at the feet of two noble teachers, birth and death, right there at the beginning. They would guide me throughout my years as a pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist, and later as a researcher with hospice patients, standing like two arcs de triomphe at either end of the human journey.
1: It's so powerful, Betsy. I I didn't uh, have a chance to know Erling when I uh, when did he die? Year did he die? Um, I think it was nineteen eighty six.
2: Eighty six,
1: because I don't think we met until around nineteen ninety or ninety one. Mm-hmm. So when I met you, you and Charles were living in New York City um, in. A, a community unlike any I'd seen before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you were in a, what, large brownstone kind of building? Mm-hmm. Yes. What street Six was 6,000
2: square feet. 13th Street, 13th between street. 5th and 6th in yeah. the West Village.
1: And it was a communal
2: mm-hmm. living
1: situation that where Erling had lived with you all. Right. And it was designed in an extraordinary way. Um, can you describe the the main area where there was a
2: gathering place mm-hmm. so um, the the forward third of the this very large loft was um, created by Erling and designed um, it was a very round, a very large round area covered with a Deep purple rug, and there were three niches off um, the sides into which um, were placed um, particular um, objects of art. Um, one had a beautiful statue of a Buddha, and um, some other, another one had. Um, some ancient Japanese drawings. And the third one had a um, cross made out of um, glass mosaics through which the light shined. And we, um, in the center, was this um, sort of conversation pit with banked... um, Benches also covered by the purple rug rising up around it. Erling had designed that space as a place to hold meetings where the setting could really invoke um, the, the kind of deepest explorations of uh, the world, world um, issues, or explorations of spiritual. Um, questions and uh, it was um, and people came from um, because we lived in New York City there were many people visiting New York from around the world like at the United Nations and so many of these people we would invite to come and um, speak together with um, members of our community and other people we knew would be interested and would be able to contribute to a really meaningful, um, energizing conversation. We had some wonderful times there.
1: If I remember, I don't think your community had a name, did it?
2: Uh, well, we called ourselves the ISIS community, which the was... ISIS community, oh, that's right. We right. were just um, initials, the... Um, oh, my goodness. The... We don't need the... Yeah, the, don't need the I'm sorry, I've gone <laughs> so long in the past. I can't
1: remember what stood for. One of the great Greek yes, uh, right. archetypal goddesses. Right. Um, and um, your community, which was, it was an extraordinary group of people. I mean, mm-hmm. these, these were extremely gifted people who were drawn together into this. About how many people were part of that core group?
2: About um, 35, Mm -hmm. something like that. But only,
1: what, a dozen or so lived in the building, and then the rest lived... Well,
2: well, um, about... um, 10 of us, I guess, Mm -hmm. originally lived on one floor, Mm -hmm. and uh, the third floor in this building, and, and... on the second floor was the same amount of space um, occupied by another group of people, um, probably about fourteen or so.
1: Mm-hmm. So quite a few were all living together.
2: Right, and so each of these spaces were created with um, one big dining mm-hmm. table in a dining the dining area and one kitchen that we all where we mm-hmm. made our mm-hmm. communal dinners and. Um, We also owned a big house um, out in the Shuangunk Mountains where we would retreat on the weekends and um, and all be together there.
1: How long did the community stay together?
2: Well, after Erling died, um, really until Sophie died in about, 86, it's until 2000.
1: Mm -hmm. And how long before he died were you together?
2: Oh, at least 10 years.
1: Okay, so 86 to 2000 is 14 years, so more or less 25 years. Yes. Yeah. And the community was also deeply involved, was it not, in conceptualizing and creating an extraordinary organization which I went to visit called The Door. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that part of Erling's vision?
2: Oh, he was very much involved with it. He felt that one thing, if you're on the spiritual path, mm-hmm. um, one thing that's very important is to be grounded in the world at the same time and be engaged so he encouraged each of us to develop um, some kind of um, skill or profession that would be our instrument in the world. He said, you, you need to have an instrument mm-hmm. that um, with which to um, engage and through which to learn uh, about what it is to be part of the human family. So, for example, I went to medical school because of him, and Charles um, pursued his legal career um, because of Erling, and each one of us chose some something that we were interested in and developed a skill around it. Mm-hmm.
1: Charles, when I first met you, I think was the the director, one of the top people at the door. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. he was, and went on from there to head um, what is now called Rockefeller Philanthropy Associates. It had another name then and then worked uh, with the Bravewell Collaborative, Mm -hmm. which was a leading group involved in um, awards and raising the visibility of integrative medicine and body health. Um, So you had these parallel uh, careers. Uh, Your work as a, as a pediatrician and then with end-of-life work um, in New York, and Charles's work with the door and then with uh, the philanthropy work, and mm-hmm. uh, later from up here on Whidbey with the Bravewell community. You and Charles were also uh, founding members, as I was, of the community of people supporting Enso House, which mm-hmm. is the, the hospice uh, part of Shoto Harada Roshi's community here. A remarkable Zen teacher who created a center here. So I'm just kind of creating a context. So what I'd like to do is to go back to, since this is spiritual biography, and these are sort of the historical facts, to go back to your own spiritual evolution. Um, so uh, let's sort of jump into the middle of that, where we were with Erling. Um, he believed that uh, the Bailey work, Alice Bailey's uh, multi-volume work, uh, esoteric uh, spiritual vision, very extraordinary esoteric spiritual vision, was at least one good God. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? He encouraged you all to read it. He
2: did. Yeah. And he said he didn't want to introduce us to that kind of um, resource of teaching. Um because he didn't want us to become too theoretical and feel like reading books would be um, a way to pursue spirituality, that we'd find answers that way. Um, He wanted us to learn from life, to see life as our major teacher. But when he was dying, he said, um, I'm going to now introduce you to uh, a resource which... Can you can continue to learn from because he, he felt we had enough foundation um, to not get overly kind of infatuated with those books or um, esoteric teachings. So yes, we have. I there are many of those books um, in the that Alice Bailey and Master DK um, collaborated to write over many years, and I have not read all of them by any means. Um, But I still do read them occasionally um, and really have a great respect for them. So at this
1: point in our lives, yours and mine, how would you describe your understanding of the mystery of life? does, Does the Bailey work, for example, uh, appear to you today um, to be the best description that you're aware of of the mystery of life, just to offer that as a hypothesis? Or uh, h- how do you understand the mystery? What, how does it look to you from where you are today?
2: Well, I've had other experiences like the dying of both of my parents, mm-hmm. um, which were quite remarkable experiences. Each of them, and um, I felt I learned not only not just intellectually, but I experientially learned. uh, I experienced being taken by both of them again, like Erling had taken me, right up to the the a. living experience with the mystery. And so my my view that's evolved in me and the, which resides in me and informs my living is that um, we come here from some other realm. We're energy, basically, in our... In our being, and in this realm, this realm of material, um, this material plane, we don material a form, uh, a material form that allows us to to be in this dimension of space and time, and in a way, have free will. Um For me, the way I choose to use my free will is in a couple of ways. One is to um, work with my consciousness so that I can take in the majesty of this this plane, the the gorgeous beauty that life on earth, this mysterious process called, that we call life, has created here. And one thing I love to do is at night um, look out into a really black sky when the moon is not obscuring the vision and look at those stars out there and just ponder the mystery of the fact that this planet is the only one we know of so far where this process of life has Unfolded and created this just abundance of life forms of animals and plants and insects and um, and it's just I just love savoring that mystery. I love being taken to the edge where my mind cannot grasp this mystery fully, and I'm left in a state of wonder. Um, and I feel like we are humanity is at a at a point where a major shift needs to happen, or if not, we are going to increasingly destroy the the beauty that life has created on this planet. Um, I don't believe ultimately that will happen. I think. Humanity will go through a collective awakening and shift in consciousness so that we become able to appreciate this incredible planet that we live on and um, do wonderful things here and make life good for every human being who incarnates here and comes to have an experience here.
1: What is your earliest memory of some contact with the mystery or the world of spirit that you've just described? What's your earliest memory of
2: it? It's funny that you ask... I like the questions you're asking. You're taking me back to interesting places in my life. Um, I remember that very distinctly. I don't remember how old I was. I was maybe 10 or something. And I was standing in our backyard in Massachusetts, where I was growing up, and it was a very dark night, and I looked up overhead, and I suddenly realized, how did I get here? I realized I didn't know where I had come from, or what had brought me here, and it was almost a terrifying thought, um, but not quite. It was an exhilarating thought that I came from somewhere. Otherwise, I couldn't have gotten here. So where and why am I here?
1: You had three siblings. Your father was um, came from being a farm boy who worked his way to Harvard Medical School went into World War II, was a chief medical officer on a destroyer in the heart of battle, Mm -hmm. you know, taking care of people, came back and became, uh, you know, a leading uh, surgeon in in the rural community where you lived. So you had your father, who you describe as a solid oak uh, Mm -hmm. tree, and your mother as a willow who whose quiet energy you didn't appreciate till later, but she ran the volunteer network at the hospital. And so you came out of uh, this tradition and, and uh, uh, your father being kind of gruff, no-nonsense, uh, you can bear pain, <laughs> stitching up your foot when you stepped on glass with no medication, just no pain medication. <laughs> so um, just that as background to this conversation... Uh, so at 10, when you had this experience, was that something you could share with your mother or father, or was there a sense that it was better to keep that to yourself?
2: I didn't even think of asking them. Okay. It's curious that you point that out to mm-hmm. me now. <laughs> I, it never occurred to me mm-hmm. that they might be able to answer that uh-huh. question. In fact, I think I probably, if I had thought about it, I would have just Assumed that they didn't know either.
1: Mm -hmm. So you didn't, to your knowledge, your parents weren't the kinds of people to entertain questions Mm -hmm. like
2: that. Right. Mm -hmm. I once... um, My father didn't believe in anything more than Mm -hmm. um, his skill as a physician. He had seen so many people die in such terrible ways. Um, He felt the scalpel was... um, His power and his work was to help people. Is your brother or your father? My father. Your father, right. Right. Um, His job was to help people as best he could through that. And um, I once asked my mother um, if she felt, if she believed in God. And she said she didn't really know. She very much was influenced by my father's kind of materialistic perspective. But um, she said, but if there is a God, the time I feel closest to the feeling that there could be is when I walk through the forest.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Betsy McGregor, MD, and Michael Lerner.
1: I walk through the floor. Forest. When forest. I, walk I, I thought you the meant the floor of the hospital. Oh no! In the oh, yeah,
2: yeah. No, when I when she would walk through the forest, and yeah. she loved to do that. And it's curious that when Charles and I left New York City and moved here to Whitby, we chose a house that is backed by thirty acres of oh, forest. beautiful forest, yeah. and both of us. Love to walk there in silence and just feel the kind of the meditative depth that that forest holds.
1: So, was Erling your first introduction to the world of spirit after age ten, or was there a getting there before you met Erling?
2: Mm. Um, Charles and I were searching um, when we met. Um, We, I think we felt that in each other, Mm -hmm. and we tried out a number of. How
1: old were you when you met?
2: See, I was.
1: Or where were you when you?
2: I was a junior in college. mm -hmm. I was at Wellesley College, and Charles was at Harvard Law School, and. Mm We met and got married as soon as we... We had timed it perfectly. We were both graduating at the same time. Mm -hmm. So we got married in June after we just had both graduated. And um, we embarked on a search for spiritual teachers. So we...
1: um, You interviewed people.
2: Yes, we did. We pursued (laughs) people and... Mm
1: -hmm. How many people did you interview, roughly?
2: Oh, I don't know. Not many, many? like communities. Oh, not communities. Really, we were looking for a teacher. Looking for a teacher, and um, oh, five or six or Mm -hmm. seven or something. When we would hear about one, Mm -hmm. we'd go off and and find out what that felt like, and we weren't too impressed. Really? That's mm-hmm. why we didn't stick with any of them. And, um,
1: so how did you meet Erling?
2: Uh, f- an el- we, we were thinking of moving, of leaving New York City and moving up to Woodstock and becoming hippies and going mm-hmm. back to the land. And we had put our furniture, um, we were advertising our furniture for sale and an elderly woman came to look at our couch. And she walked in, and she looked around. And she said, "Well, that's not very interesting to me." And but before she left, she spotted a book by Krishnamurti lying on our uh, on a table there, and she said, "Oh, are you interested in this kind of thing?" And we said, "Yes, this this kind of inquiry is really interesting to us." And she said, "Well." there's somebody you might like to meet. Hmm. So she arranged this meeting for us with Erling and um, I have such a clear memory of going into this, um, this office setting and into a room that had a very long uh, meeting table in the middle of it and um, Erling sat on one side and Charles and I sat on the other and Erling started talking. And he talked to Charles. um, And he just went on and on talking. And I was just sitting there gawking at this man. I was... I probably had my mouth open. I was so astounded by the presence, by his presence. And finally, he turned to me and said, Well, Betsy, what do you have to say? And I... I opened my mouth, but nothing would come out. I couldn't speak a word, and tears just started rolling down my face. So that was our—that was my first, uh, both of our first experience of Erling, and and so other people were um, being introduced to him as well. Um, at that same time, um, he was kind of gathering um a group of people to had he, him. had he recently arrived in New York? He had been there for I don't remember um, five or six years or what is his full name? Erling Thunberg. He's How do you Swedish T H U N B E R G. Erling Thunberg. Yeah. He was born in Sweden and
1: And what was his life history? How did he come to New
2: York? Um he had left home at 12 to um, find his teacher and found a man who um, taught him, I don't know what, but was was like a mentor to him until he was um, old enough. He joined the Swedish intelligence, um, because I guess every. Person in Sweden had to have some, had to join the military and do some years in the military. And so um, he did that. And then he um, was drawn to New York City as one of the um, centers of the world where. Um, one of, the, one of the energy centers of the planet.
1: So he went from this apprenticeship with his teacher, mm-hmm. in effect, to New York. Mm-hmm. And that's where you met Well,
2: into the military.
1: Oh, into the military. And then, and
2: then New to New York.
1: Yeah. And how old was he when you met him, roughly? Mm. I mean, in his 30s or 40s?
2: Or Thirty, what? Early 30s, I early guess. Early 30s. Or mid-30s. Yeah. Mm. Um, and he had also, at that time he had sought out many of the um, really um, of forward thinking people um, mm-hmm. that he could, like Alan Watts and oh, I don't even remember all the mm-hmm. people who were so he himself had been exploring yes, he well he he was curious about what thoughts were being brought into humanity's evolution at that I think in the book you describe him as a historian also. That's the word I use okay. to kind of give him a label. It
1: wasn't like he was formally trained in history.
2: No, no, but he but was... But it was
1: a good word to describe. Right. right. So. so was he... Do you know much about his teacher?
2: No, not really. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said he was... a. Uh, Not in a particular lineage, but was um, a very conscious person. Hmm.
1: It's uh, when. um,
2: And so, can I just um, tag on something that. So he, Charles and I were among two of the people um, that fairly quickly over just um, two or three years, gravitated, ended up gravitating to Erling. And um, then he suggested to us, um, we would have regular meetings in one person's, somebody's apartment or another, um, to discuss life in the universe with Erling. And um, eventually he said, he proposed the idea that we um, intensify our learning process and live together as a community. So we bought these two very large apartments and um, and created these living spaces. So these this was a very committed
1: spaces. group of people.
2: We were, you know, looking back, I would say yes. I think at the time we didn't... Um, think of ourselves I don't know what we thought of ourselves really we just knew we wanted to do these um, we wanted to do what he was suggesting it just felt very exciting and who wanted to live an ordinary life we didn't we wanted to have meaning in our life and intensity and, um, and you got it that's what we got <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nothing like communal living to
2: introduce us to intensity. Really. And when he died, Mm -hmm. we continued on for Mm -hmm. um, another 20 years. That's
1: remarkable. Yeah. Part of your... I mean, part of the reason we met around the Earth Summit process, because I remember, I think it was my friend Catherine Porter, I could be Mm -hmm. wrong, who told me about you all. Mm -hmm. But... um, some of your members were very involved as this effort to be of service with the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And um, so in Alice Bailey's work, and I haven't read all of it either, but I certainly have read, I think there's a dozen volumes. I probably read five or six of them. Mm -hmm. Um, She has this concept, which you later became familiar with, of of world servers. And so from this, extremely esoteric arcane theory about how the universe works and masters of various kinds and, Mm -hmm. you know, one who, you know, dictated to her these Mm -hmm. works. But from after all this arcane process, you filter through it whatever one thinks of it, and it's an extraordinary piece of work. Where she comes out is that there are these world servers in all communities around the world, from very different political perspectives and all this, but they're all part Mm -hmm. of this effort Mm -hmm. to help humanity through this transition Mm -hmm. that we're talking about. So my question is, since he didn't, oh yeah, let's see, so he had you read the Bailey work as he died, so this was, he died in 86, this was roughly around 91, Mm -hmm. 90, 91, 92 was there a sense in the community that your intention was to try to be world servers?
2: Uh, I would say yes, we wanted to serve. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we um, limited the vision to what Alice Bailey and Master DK um, described, because really those books are really dense and mm-hmm. not all of us not many of us read much of them okay so um but we we while we had lived together with Erling we had started the door this um service center for inner city youth
1: which was extraordinary
2: extraordinary and it was a, a center where Medical services, social workers, um, uh, doctors. Yeah, um, what legal services, yeah. art expression, um, every kind of way we could entry point we could think of to to be able to reach out and and. Um, draw in some of the very some of the teenagers in New York who were some of them were living on the streets others were um, just had miserable home life and it was in the village was not it? it was it was in the village yeah
1: round one street was it
2: it was on tenth um, tenth street okay. it was in an old we started um, for many years it was located in um, a building that was used by a um, drug rehabilitation um, clinic during the day. And in the evening, we would go in and put all the stuff that belonged to the drug clinic out of, out of the way and set up our uh, resources. Um, and we were all volunteers, volunteering at the end of uh, very hard work days. And um, eventually... Um, Charles led the way um, with a couple of others to raise money for um, the work that um, to be able to allow us to rent a space and have more um, actually establish a medical clinic with medical supplies and um, art supplies and educational supplies. And we finally acquired a building where the door is still going strong, providing help to to thousands of inner-city teenagers And a day.
1: Parallel to that, you helped start that, and then parallel to that in your work as a pediatrician, um, as described in your book, uh, you were constantly in the presence of these children who had been thrown against walls mm. by you know, drug abusing boyfriends of their mothers and uh, burnt, beaten. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, you were really in the midst of inner city pediatric emergency care.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, in hospital, and hospitalized children. And yeah.
1: One of the things that you talk about that I was very moved by in the book is how, as a medical, Student and then young physician in training, but uh, uh, that you had to discover how real your moral courage was. Mm. I really found that fascinating. In other words, you kept finding yourself in situations where everything inside of you just rebelled against mm. how. Uh, the senior uh, residents or whatever were treating a child or an old woman Mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. And yet, at first, you were completely unempowered to say anything. Mm -hmm. But then you continually faced these circumstances where you had to decide, did you go along with what everybody was willing to do, or did you speak up and maybe just get a crushing response to Mm it?
2: (laughs) yeah I had a pretty um feisty part of my being that um was determined to change things when I saw something that didn't feel right. And as i um, as I gained an experience and went from being just a a lowly medical student to an intern and then to a resident and then chief resident, and then, was hired on as a teaching...
1: You were the um, chief resident. I, was, I didn't know that.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: Where were you chief resident?
2: At um, Beth Israel Medical Center. Okay. And finally was hired to be an attending physician with a teaching job. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just kept finding life opening one door after another. Um, I was probably banging on some mm-hmm. of them, but um, to uh, allow me to have more influence... Um, and I felt that was that was what I wanted to do
1: so it seems to me there were at least two key themes in what you were trying to accomplish one was you wanted at at the start of your career in a lot of situations pain was not taken seriously Mm -hmm. you wanted to alleviate pain right and the other was that you wanted people to be treated with dignity as human beings in a, a situation where they often weren't. Mm-hmm. Were, were those the t- two key themes, or were there other key pieces of what you were trying to achieve?
2: I'd say... Um, I wanted to change the way we looked at death and dying. Mm-hmm. That was a very major... Oh, right,
1: um, of course, that's the third.
2: Right, a major drive yeah. for me. Um I saw that when, as patients got sicker and became clearer and clearer that they weren't going to respond mm-hmm. to the medical team's efforts mm-hmm. to um, allow them to live, then often the doctors would become, would start to disappear, would would become less engaged with them, would spend less time at the bedside with them. Mm-hmm. Um, would turn their care over to junior people or let the nurses do it. And um, I felt just the opposite. I felt that both um, being there and providing, um, just offering what I could offer as a human being and cloaked in this identity as a doctor um, was, was... a powerful gift to be able to give. And also, I wanted to be there because I experienced dying as such an extraordinary thing to be in the presence of. It really is like gaining a... just like having the door opened and catching a glimpse of the larger reality of life. Um, So whenever I had a a dying patient, I would try my utmost to be with them, partly because I wanted to say goodbye. I wanted to love them right up to the end for my sake as well as for theirs. And um, partly because I felt it was like, was a moment of grace, really, to be there at that Um, that mysterious point when life left the body and you found yourself sitting there in silence. It was this incredible, rich silence that's like no other silence it's possible to experience. In my perspective, is the silence of death. You describe
1: uh, in the book... uh, an episode where your husband Charles uh, went in for um, to have a stent mm-hmm. uh, placed in his heart and all of a sudden things went wrong and he went into crisis and there was a very real possibility that he wouldn't make it
2: yes he had a cardiac arrest
1: he had a cardiac arrest and, and you were told to leave the room and they went in and worked on him and then came out and said he was fine. And you then went in, and Charles was alive and looking radiant. Mm. (laughs) And he whispered to you what he had experienced. Could you describe what he experienced?
2: Well, first let me say, when I went back into that room, after having stood out in the hallway... With the door closed to his room, when they kicked me out of his room in order to resuscitate him, try to resuscitate him after his he'd had this, his heart had stopped beating. Um, I, for an immeasurable amount of time, it was probably only ten minutes or so, but I didn't know whether I had that had been the last time I was going to see Charles alive, and it was. just um, a shocking thing um, It took me to the kind of the the, the place of the, the most unknown place I've ever been in myself. Um, but when they opened the door to his room and said, oh, um, come on, you can come back in now. <laughs> and I went back in and um, after they had You know, I've seen patients undergo resuscitation attempts where the people are doing CPR on them and forcing their chest um, to expand and contract and um, injecting them with adrenaline and all of this procedure that is a harrowing procedure. Um, And people look like they've just come back from an extreme experience. After that but when I saw Charles he was he, he was smiling and radiant and his eyes were shining and um, he didn't look like someone who had just been <laughs> pummeled back into life um, and he said he had had a really interesting experience that he had felt himself being sucked down almost like as if you're being flushed down the toilet kind of sucked into this swirling tunnel and then coming out at the other end of this swirling tunnel into a room where everything was completely quiet and peaceful and calm and there were several people standing there um, who came over to him and kind of stood around him and he, I think he said they were they seemed to be clothed in kind of robe-like clothing. And they they put their hands around him and on his shoulders, and one reached over and did something to his heart, um touched his heart, but it felt like the touch went into his body and actually touched his his physical heart inside his body. And almost made some kind of adjustment in it. Um, And the next thing he knew, he was swishing back and popping back into his cold, um, uh, stiff body. Um, But he was just, he was, his eyes were shining and he was, just had this big grin on his face and as if he just had this invigorating, wonderful experience. So,
1: did Charles's experience change your perception or his perception of how the universe works, or was it simply kind of an affirmation of what you both felt you already knew?
2: Um, for me, it was, just a confirmation, a really powerful, intimate Mm. confirmation of what I had felt and feel. Um, But for Charles, it was, um, it took him a new step. Mm. Um, Although I had been in the presence of death many times, he had only been in the presence of Erling's death and that was so special and um, but now he'd had his own mm-hmm. experience with the mystery, um, and he, oh, he was grateful for it. And what did you learn from
1: your mother and father's death?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother, um, So she had pancreatic cancer, and we all knew that that meant she did not, was not going to live very long before her death would come. And at one point I said, uh, um, I was just going to move back, go back to Massachusetts, um, from where we were living on Whidby, and move into the basement and be there. Whether they wanted me to be there or not, I was coming. So I moved in with them and helped my father um, take care of her. and as she got um, quickly more quickly closer and closer to dying, my father reached a point where he, he just couldn't deal with... He did not want to watch her die. He did not want that. And so he just left her to me, which I was perfectly happy about. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, I she happened to reach up and take my arm and said, Betsy, I'm afraid to die. I don't want to die. And I said, well, Mom, I I can understand that you feel that way. I, I hear you. Um, but, you know, I I just have this feeling that it's not going to be a bad experience and that you might in fact have a wonderful experience and she she laughed and she said well I don't know if that's true and I said well no neither of us do really but I just I don't know I just have a feeling that you might be surprised and um, so she said well well we'll see um, and then a week before she died, she reached out her hand and took hold of my arm again and said, Betsy, I'm not afraid anymore mm. and um, I feel ready. So um, so she, she died that night and I was with her right up to the last breath and um, felt just... such a gift to be able to be there as she left and um we had a memorial service for her um my father and i planned it with my two brothers so she died on a friday on wednesday we had a memorial service and 200 people came to this little new england church to um her memorial and stood in line to shake my father's hand afterwards um because they all, all these people knew him. He was so well known in the community and they wanted to give their condolences to him. And so she died on a Friday. We had her memorial on a Wednesday. Um, that evening, after her memorial was over, my father was looking so gray and exhausted that as we, um, that w- my brothers and I said, and Charles, we all said, well, let us take you to the hospital. So let them check your blood pressure or whatever, and and um, he he was kind of not really excited about the idea, but he we pressured him and he said, all right, fine, fine, take me to, and we got to the hospital and he said, okay, you kids go on now, this is my hospital, I'll take care of it from here. So he went into the emergency room and we left, and about a half an hour later, we got a call. From the ER doctor, who said, "Well, um, we found something interesting. Your father, his blood pressure is okay, but his blood shows that his veins are packed with leukemic cells. He's mm. in the midst of a leukemic crisis." Mm. And um, I said, "Well, wow. Well, what did my father say about this?" And um, the the ER doctor said, "Well, that that was a surprise." He said, "Good. Give me a bed." hook me up to some morphine so I'm not suffering and get out of my way. And so that was Wednesday. Friday, which was one week after the Friday my mother died, my father died. He he was just gone. It was really amazing (laughs) that he could just decide to, or just leave life so fast. So my brothers and I and Charles had a memorial service on Wednesday, a week after the memorial service for my mother, and the same 200 people that had come to my mother's memorial service came to my father's memorial service and lined up afterwards to shake my brother's hands and mine. And all of them said, we're so glad we got to see your father last week. And we feel like we had the opportunity to to say how much he meant to us and to say goodbye
0: you're listening to a conversation with Betsy McGregor, M.D., and Michael Lerner.
2: Um, so anyways... Um, How did that change you? Boy, it was an amazing sense of, like, freedom. Like, they're, they were set free from their lives... And they had gone on, and it was like, I felt a sense of amazing freedom. Like they had, in doing that, they had also set me free to, what, I don't know, to finish my life in the way that would be exactly right for me. Um, Not standing in the shadow of parents anymore, Mm -hmm. but... um,
1: Did you have a sense that they came back to visit you in any way afterwards? Well,
2: so, I can't remember. Did I tell you the part where I asked my mother? I said, um, maybe you can, you're going, I think you're going someplace wonderful, and maybe you can send me back a message? Oh, so I said, well, maybe you can send me a message and let me know if it, mm-hmm. what's, if it's true and what you think. And she laughed because she didn't really believe it, but she was humoring me. And I said, well, yeah, I've heard people send back birds or something to mm-hmm. send a message. And so she just humored me. But um, so then anyways, when Charles and I finally returned home after finishing up all the things from my parents' lives, um and fell exhausted, Uh, got home late at night, fell exhausted into our bed where we hadn't slept for six weeks, and um, woke up at 5.30 in the morning, just as dawn was breaking, um, with this funny sound. Just to the right of my side of the bed, there's a window, and on the window was... And I looked over, and there was a little bird fluttering against the window, flutter, 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 flutter. flutter. The next morning, five thirty in the morning, which is not my usual hour of waking, again, tap, 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 tap. Flutter, 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 flutter. The next morning, the same thing. The bird went on for a week, another week, another week. We were taking pictures of it. We were opening the the sliding door to see, well, maybe this bird wants to come into our bedroom for some reason, and the bird flew around to the sliding door and held on with its little feet on the door and looked into our room, looking in every direction, but didn't come in. And it was the cutest bird. This bird came to my window every morning for five months. I've told that story to bird specialists, and they said they've never heard of such a thing. Um, But that bird, so finally I, this might be stretching some people's ability to believe, but I I got in touch with an animal communicator, um, a psychic on Whidbey who um, works just with animals, and So she, I told her, nothing except there's a bird coming to my window every morning at the same time and fluttering up and down. What is going on with this bird? And no mention of my mother at all or anything, um, because I really wanted to see what this person could discern. And so she said, okay, yes, yes, I can... Feel the bird. I feel the bird's presence. Uh, yes, this is this bird is definitely drawn to you. It has a strong sense of wanting to reach you. And, um, and then the person said, "But wait a minute, wait a minute. There's somebody else here. There's a person here. But I don't deal with people. I only communicate with the animals." And um, so I said, "Well." You, there's a person there? Like, what? where's this person coming from? And she said, well, it's a funny thing. This person is saying she's related to you. She's saying she's your mother. Could that be possible? At which point I said, well, yes, that could be possible. (laughs) And so whereupon she started to facilitate a conversation where... Um, she said, she wants to know how you are. And I said, well, I'm fine. And how is she? And she the woman said, oh, she says she's doing quite well. And I said, well, what, what are you doing? What's it like where you are? And she said, well, it's very interesting. It's a place of many different dimensions and levels. And so right now I am... Learning about my life, and I am almost ready. When I finish that, to I will be going on to be of help to other people. And I was surprised that I. Well, what what kind of help will you be able to give? She said, just by um, sharing what I've learned from my life. That's how one of the main ways to help. Um, but there are many others. So um, I have that conversation. I tape-recorded it, actually, um, when I was having it with this psychic. Um, so um, I, I asked about the bird, and she said, well, you you wanted a message, and you asked for it in this form, so I was sending you the bird to let you know. <laughs> and um, So anyways... After we finished the conversation and um, um, hung up, then the next morning when I woke up, for the first time in five months, the bird did not come to the window. Mm.
1: What a story. Amazing. Yes. How beautiful. I wanted to ask you, going back to Erling for a moment, because Mm you talked about how you felt changed by Erling's Mm -hmm. death. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes when people's teachers die, they have the experience that the teacher has come inside them in some way. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you how you felt changed and whether there was some dimension of that or something else. In other words, what you you beautifully describe in the book, a sense of profound change. The book speaks for itself. I just wonder if you can say more than that. Mm.
2: Well, when I went back and um, returned to medical school, and I was in a different class, um, so that um, you know, my class had gone on, and um, I was in the class of people that I didn't know. So it was, it was, um, there was kind of a loneliness that I had, but at the same time, it was an external loneliness. And inwardly, I um, I felt still very filled with Erling, but over time I began to feel that fading. And I remember this kind of grief coming over me that um, that I was going to grief at the realization that he wasn't going to live with me for the rest of my life um, I wouldn't continue to sense him the way that um, I had initially and the sense of him faded steadily um, and I think it had to otherwise I couldn't have gone back to medical school and focused the way I had to I think i I had to study, it was really hard to study because my thoughts would always just be gravitating back to Erling um, to the um, the door that he had opened for me and to this larger perspective of life that was totally missing from medical school perspectives so um I think his memory had to fade. I don't know whether it was him pulling away and sort of drawing a veil um, uh, across my memory or whether it was my own soul just really trying to get anchored back into life. Um, You had
1: at least two other extraordinary experiences uh, after Charles's uh, heart-stopping and return. uh, One of them you describe in the book, when you were diagnosed with Mm -hmm. cancer yourself and went through rigorous treatment. I remember that very vividly. Um, And decided that it was time to end your career as a physician uh, and to move up here. Um, And the other was more recent, which um, was a a close brush with death with somebody that you're Mm. very close to and, and love and care about. And I wanted to ask again, in the spirit of sort of spiritual biography, what impact both your own cancer experience had and then this later experience of someone you were close to who um, really uh, came very close to the edge?
2: Right. Well, that was, like you say, an incredible shock, a wrenching shock to... to realize that someone we really, really loved could suddenly be gone and um, be gone way too early with no warning. Um, I think that experience um, was just... Another really um, strong wake-up call I maybe life is just filled with them maybe we um, when we're connected through strong bonds of love to other people we will inevitably go through... Um, some major experiences with them when they have brushes with death Um, it was just um, something that taught me yet again about the preciousness of life and took me to a place of greater gratitude and I think I know that you've had an inquiry about gratitude, um, a very deep inquiry, um, for a long time in your life. And um, if I would choose one kind of state of being or inner experience um, that I consider uh, to be one of the supreme inner experiences of in human life, um, for me, it, it is gratitude.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree. It's the great. It's the great teaching. Mm. It is. You know, I did a spiritual biography with Brother David steindl mm-hmm. who, of course, his core theme is gratefulness, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I know that at this point in my own life, um, gratefulness or gratitude is is absolutely. Mm-hmm the heart
2: of my experience you know yeah so yeah and my experience in going through cancer and Mm -hmm. nearly dying not from cancer but from the treatment having to stop the treatment because i felt it was the cancer had come only to teach me and not to kill me and i felt i had learned what cancer had come to teach and i I felt I didn't need to take the final round of chemo because it was, if I did, my body wouldn't be able to take it. And mm. um, so I talked my oncologist into um, agreeing to let me off without it. Um, but as I, in that state where I felt I was um, drifting further and further out away from my connection to life and to Charles and to our two kids. Um, it was, I, I wouldn't change that experience for anything. It taught me, it showed me, it revealed for me how, um, just what amazing gifts I have in my life. Um, being married to Charles and having two amazing human beings who Mm -hmm. came into life as a result of our love, Charles and me, and we just, Charles and I, um, love watching their lives unfold as they continue on their paths. Um, um, I was very glad that... Cancer just showed me what it showed me and, um, and left me with a changed mm-hmm. consciousness, a greater capacity for gratitude.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe
1: as a close, let's talk a little bit about Enso House, the mm-hmm. Zen hospice that you started here. Can you say a little bit about it?
2: Well, Charles and I um, got drawn into um, this idea of founding a place on Whidbey, a a place where one or at most two people could be taken care of in exactly the way that was right for them, a a place that would be flexible enough to, to hold the space for one person after another in just the way that that person wanted and needed. Um, The idea of creating something like that just really excited us and the other people who were um, exploring this idea of doing it um, were we felt just very connected with, very drawn to and excited to be working with. And one of them was um, Harada Roshi, this um, man who is a Zen priest who's the um, in charge of a 400-year-old monastery in Japan, as you know. Um, And he was very—he had experienced the dying of his teacher, had taken care of. Um, his teacher during his long drawn-out illness and his death. And Harada Roshi himself had been um, very impressed with the, the power of that experience, of being present at the moment of death. And he said he felt it was the greatest teaching um, possible about the mystery of permanence and impermanence, which are two of the the core of you know, principles in Zen Buddhism of that that um, teachers work with with Zen students about seeing. Developing the consciousness that can really have a very well honed um, awareness of life as composed of these two principles, permanence and impermanence, and how permanence always is superseded by impermanence, um, and yet we human beings want to hang on to permanence, but. Um, Eventually, all our efforts to do so will will be foiled, and um, because the nature of life is change. Mm. Um, so, when this idea arose to create a, a home where people in Whitby could be cared for, and Zen students who are under the Roshi's um, training um, were following his teachings could not only be taught by him but be taught by the teacher death death as a teacher he loved that idea thought it was an incredibly powerful way for someone who really is exploring the nature of consciousness to be able to um, see through the the, you know, see beyond the surface level of life.
1: And this extraordinary physician, Ann Kutcher, came and has been at the heart of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Really a remarkable, remarkable woman. She this, is. Uh, she is. She really yeah, is. Yeah. And so us couldn't exist without mm-hmm. her. And, and she d- is devoting her skills to helping people Hold to holding the right space and right type of care for each individual.
1: So, is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to say as we kind of bring this to a close? Is there any Mm. piece of your evolution as a being um, trying to be of service in this world Mm. Um, uh, and um, finding yourself? sitting with an old friend <laughs>
2: um,
1: reflecting on reflecting on it
2: well maybe end with one little story about a patient um, as the story seems like a good way to end good. Um, so Ernestine was an 81 year old woman who um, Loved to tell her story, loved telling her story to me, I should say. Um, she said she grew up um, with no love in her life. She had felt really disappointed that she had a life that had no love in it. And when she looked around, she saw everybody else seemed to have love except for her. Her mother had been mean to her all her life. Her father, who maybe did love her for a while before he died, but he died at age nine, so she didn't really remember much. Um, and she had no siblings. She never married. Um, she really had no real friends to speak of. Um, she had worked in a um, as a secretary in the mayor's office for... Forty years, and when she turned sixty-five, they laid her off that very day, and for not so much as a thank you, they no goodbye party or anything. Um, And so she felt like she just um, life was a big disappointment. So when she um, developed uh, a reoccurrence of a cancer she had been treated for previously. She decided not to have treatment um, and um, so as her cancer advanced she was in the care of hospice and um, she finally reached the point where she couldn't be cared for at home and she agreed to be brought into the hospital to end her life in the hospital on the hospice unit. Um, and I remember I have a clear image in my mind of her being wheeled down the hallway um, with a little valise of her belongings on her lap and a big smile on her face, and she got wheeled into a private room and and um, uh, once there she never got out of bed again. She was just um, happily ensconced in her in her. Um, Bed that could be elevated up and down and have um, a little bit of food brought to her. And um, eventually, um, just a week after being there, she stopped eating, and um, a few days after that, she stopped talking and um, slipped into terminal coma. Um, So I had been seeing her every day, and... um, So this one day, I um, was as I um, came to see her, um, I stopped. My custom was to stop at the nurses' station and find out how her night had gone. And the nurse said, "Well, she slipped into coma last night, and um, she's uh, our medical director has um, labeled her as being in terminal coma, and we expect her to to um, die at any time." So. I walked down the hall and um, stood by her bed and um, she was, her. the head of her bed was propped up so that her head was level with mine as I stood there next to her bed and I was just kind of holding onto the side rails and looking at her and musing at the, the different ways different people come to the end of their story. and. And um Ernestine's kind of determination to just be done with life and um, and she was she her head was turned away from me, um, but it was only about a foot away from where I was standing at looking at her, and um, she was snoring quite loudly, and then um, I was just standing there musing, and all of a sudden her, head started to slowly turn, turn, turn in my direction, till finally she was facing directly at me, and we were just almost nose to nose, and her eyes opened, and they, her eyes looked straight at me, and she said, why Dr. McGregor? And I went, why, Ernestine, well, how are you? <laughs> kind of a lame thing to ask but I didn't know what to say I was so surprised and she said I'm wonderful and I'm so glad you're here so I could tell you it's everything I've ever wanted thank you so much for making this possible and before I could say anything else she her eyelids just sank down and her head turned back away to where it had been and her snoring resumed. And I was left standing there kind of with my jaw hanging open. So I gave a like a belated, well, I'm so glad for you, Ernestine. I'm so glad to hear that. Mm -hmm. Thank you for telling me. And um, so I... I, I left, and um, the next day I came back, uh, again, uh, making my rounds and um, to check on her. As I walked by the nurse's station, I asked, um, any change in Ernestine? And the nurse said, uh, no, she's, she's just in terminal coma. We just expect her to die any time. We um, walked down the room and went over to Ernestine's bed, and she was still lying there kind of partially elevated by the head of the bed and um I stood there gazing at her for a minute or so just musing on the story of her life her unique story and and um until suddenly I realized that something was missing and I realized the what was missing was the sound of her breathing I got out my stethoscope and listened to her heart, and there was no sound of her heart beating either. And um, I realized she had gone, and she had gone so quietly and peacefully that even the hospice nurses on the floor hadn't realized she had passed away. But um, I just felt... Thank you, Ernestine. Thank you. And how wonderful that... um, you could leave this world in, in the way you did, because I felt that even that, in spite of her frustration and and um, kind of discontent over her loveless life, her life that had had so little happiness in it, she had seemed, in spite of that, she had seemed so happy at the this end of her life. And I thought, well, maybe mm-hmm. somehow at the very end she was finding something that she had searched for all her life and not been finding. And maybe it had something to do with the love that she hadn't found in life that she mm-hmm. was feeling she was drawing closer to.
1: Betsy McGregor, physician author of an extraordinary book In Awe of Being Human A Doctor's Stories from the Edge of Life and Death thank you for your life work Um, thank you for being a friend uh, and thank you for being with us at the New School
2: (laughs) thank you Michael it's been my pleasure I'm very grateful
0: you've been listening to a conversation with Betsy McGregor MD and Michael Lerner Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook